Welcome to Tech Empire. I'm your host, Michael Quet. And today we have on the show, Jack Paulson. Jack just recently published a report that was covered by the international press called Easy as PAI, Publicly Available Information, about Project Maven, which is famous for the role of big tech giants like Google in supplying technology for the US military. So he's gonna tell us all about that report today. And I just wanna note that Jack is executive director of Tech Inquiry, and he's former Google AI research scientist and assistant professor of mathematics at Stanford. Jack, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike, it's great to be here. Okay, so you have this report that uh, you just published at Tech Inquiry, and it is, about Project Maven. What is Project Maven really? Like, I never heard of it before, say. Um, what is Project Maven about? Yeah, so the US government has for some time used drone surveillance as a, as a means of, you know, uh, locating, tracking, and, um, well, executing, uh, or rather assassinating uh, targets of interest internationally. Originally, they these drones used very kind of uh, pinhole cameras, if you will, with some people would describe as staring through a straw. And over time, they started to use a much wider aperture so that you could look at a much broader area of the Earth at one time. And obviously, as you increase that that area that you're you're watching, there's more information that needs to be kept track of. So it's either 2012 or 2013, a study was put out by the think tank RAND, which said that if the trend continued, fully one third of all members of the US Air Force would be needed to just watch this footage from these so-called wide area motion imagery uh, drone surveillance feeds just to see what was in them. And so over time, companies like NVIDIA, Microsoft, Google, et cetera, have supplied the hardware and artificial intelligence to sort of uh, flag the, the, the images of interest so that uh, a human can then go and look. Um, in, in some cases that involves building AI to actually track targets. And that was, for example, what Google uh, employees had famously protested and put an end to their contribution to in 2018, which was, uh, I, I was at the company at that time. And so that's, uh they have a lot of footage at that point, right? And so the idea would be we can program computers to look for things and identify them to index them so that you can sort through it and you don't have to watch all that footage if you're a human. Yeah, and e even more than that, because the, the networks for communicating the footage, you know, in a battlefield are very constrained, there's also the issue of that you can't even keep really a lot of the data because this is being processed, say, on a drone. And so only the, the kind of uh, images that are of interest will be transmitted for a human to see. And so it's uh, even a bit more than triage. It's actually a determination of what's even kept. Right. So now these protests 
became, or there were protests at Google a couple years back. Mm -hmm. And I believe you were at Google at the time. Right. Um, and this is where, before we get to your report, the issue of Project Maven came under the public radar. Um, so what was going on during those last few years? How did that become a big press story? And what did we know back then about what was going on? And what, was the pro what were the protests about? Yeah, so there was a, a New York Times piece that had a, um, a slogan in it that had been proposed by Google workers from a, a letter, a, a petition that had circulated internally that demanded that Google not get into the business of war. Now, um, this was, I think, a much more egregious case of Google getting involved with the military than what had happened before. But that's not to say that Google has not worked with the military in the past. Obviously, you know, they have close connections with InQtel, which is the, the venture capital arm of, of US intelligence agencies. Like, you know, most people think just the CIA, but it's also the FBI, for example. Um, and that's through, you know, numerous companies that Google had acquired, you know, most notably Keyhole, which is what led to, you know, Google Earth and, and Google Maps. But that's a, much more abstract sort of relationship than Google actively building uh, artificial intelligence that's being used for drone targeting, which Google workers rightly saw is, is a, a different line being crossed. And so it turns out that this was through a subcontractor, or rather Google was subcontracting under a little known defense contractor named ECS Federal which is now a subsidiary of a, a staffing company called ASGN, which used to be called On Assignment. And Okay, and, and before you continue on that, you're going to be talking a lot about subcontracting. So before we move forward on this, Google subcontracting, what does this mean? You're explaining to, like a, say, a middle schooler, what does it mean to, for Google to subcontract something to somebody? Right, so there's a lot of bureaucracy involved with working with the US military, and it can take a lot of time to get the money flow directly to you directly for a task. And so often what has happened is that a sort of a company whose entire business is working with the US government, like in this case, ECS Federal, will be the primary point of contact or the prime awardee, if you will. And so they will actually run the contract. So for example, Project Maven, and then numerous other companies will work underneath them. It, it, and that allows those companies to one, you know, not have to deal with so much bureaucracy, but then arguably two, sort of hide their relationship with the US government. And so this is kind of served dual roles. Interestingly enough, Google's relationship with ECS Federal and Project Maven is actually not in public procurement records, though the Pentagon had confirmed it directly uh, to the New York Times in 2018. So Google is subcontracting to ECS Federal? Yes. And does that mean money flows in then to who? It flows into Google and then over to? No, so the Department of Defense would pay 
ECS Federal, and then ECS Federal would then transfer the funds to Google, for example. Right. So um, then at that point, Google it was creating video analytics for drones as a subcontractor to ECS Federal for the US military. Is that is that putting it right? Yeah, it, it's slightly more complicated than that. Uh, in most cases, it's what so if you replaced Google with Microsoft or Amazon or Clarify, that is a correct statement. But interestingly enough, uh, it looks like Google was a sub subcontractor on Maven because they're not actually directly named in the procurement records. And so while I can't confirm which company they were under, my hypothesis is that uh, this kind of uh, government contractor named Kerasoft was underneath ECS Federal and Google worked under them. Um, but again, that's that's conjecture. We know Google was a subcontractor. It's just not clear who they were under. But we do know that Google does work with Kerasoft and Kerasoft worked under ECS Federal. Um, so okay, it, so it can be complicated. <laughs> so, pro so this is Project Maven. Why is it called Project Maven? Did you ever get any insight on that? I mean, there's all kinds of funny names for these. I mean, there's even a, a recent one that was announced called uh, um, Steel Vulture, and that, that's also doing wide area mo motion imagery. And then one of the components related to that was called Iron Eagle. So, I, you know, I really wouldn't read too much into any of these code names. And for example, on um, ECS Federal's contracts for Maven, they each had their own code names. Uh, one of them was Avalanche, one of them was Pavement, and one of them was Kubera, which, if I'm not mistaken, is a Hindu god of wealth. Um, and then in other cases, uh, this had been referred to as Project Apollo. Uh, so, you know, code names are a nice way of, uh, I don't know, just ha having something to point to that sounds cool. A lot of the times the Department of Defense uses Star Wars code names, like for its cloud computing Project Jedi, for example. Right. Um, so I, you know, <laughs> again, I wouldn't read too much into the names. Yeah. So they must think then that they're the good side of Star Wars. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's a guy named uh, Chris Lynch, who used to be at the Defense Digital Services that started a company named uh, Rebellion Defense. And that's, you know, the whole spiel of this tech defense contractor, which for example, Eric Schmidt uh, has backed uh, is that they're kind of the the rebels as opposed to the empire, which is yeah. kind of an interesting. Eric story. Schmidt, who was rolling around with Henry Kissinger and having public speeches with Kissinger. Yeah, he's even co-authored a book with uh, Kissinger uh, alongside the chair of uh, MacArthur Foundation's board, who is also on the board of uh, Amazon. And I, I believe uh, also, I forget which university he's a professor at, I think MIT. Um, but you know the, the context I would add, speaking of Maven that I think was one of the surprising things in the report was that you know, there's perhaps been too much focus on just drone surveillance without really thinking about the broader picture of satellite surveillance, uh, social media surveillance, uh, and how all of these, of course, are going to be combined together. Right. And so 
um, one of the things that struck me about the report, and this goes to, I think, a lot of different industries, is that um, there's kind of a shadow industry there, right? There's all these companies that nobody's really ever heard of, mm-hmm. but they're supplying all these uh, creepy and, and invasive uh, technologies to the mm-hmm. U.S. military. We do see that in the advertising industry. Um, so there's obviously there's Google and Facebook, but then you have all these other companies, right, that put trackers in your phones and nobody really knows they exist. Um, um, so um, initially this Project Maven started off as this thing where um, it shocked some of the people in the public, I guess, that Google would supply. Um, um, and maybe if not shock them that they would, it definitely um, created a lot of stir that they were supplying video analytics for drones. The Google employees, if I'm not mistaken, were, uh, what was their success in, in getting Google to change what it was doing? Yeah, so there were protests for months that were sustained. And uh, I would say that there was precedent for the Project Maven protests. Um, you can look up reporting. This has mostly been forgotten, but there was, a so-called group of nine engineers at Google who had refused to build air gap functionality into their cloud computing, which would essentially be a way of separating a piece of Google's cloud from the rest of the internet as a requirement for defense contractors and the US government to use Google's cloud. And so obviously, you know, employees knew what this was for. They knew it would lead to more Air Force contracts. And so nine employees just refused to, to work on the project and it in fact shut it down. Um, and so it, it's best to understand the Project Maven protests as in the context of, of workers having understood that even a group of just nine employees could block a contract if they were sufficiently, you know, um, in a, a throttled or, you know, a, a very, um, uh, an area where there wasn't a lot of redundancy for the labor. Right. So they're specialized in it so that they they can't just be replaced easily. Right. I- exactly. And so that that's the broader context, I would say. And, um, you know, to be perfectly blunt about it, you know, I did not participate in those protests. You know, I at the time I was mostly, uh, you know, keeping my head down as someone who had just, you know, changed jobs a couple of years ago from academia and again, I, you know, to be blunt, I felt a bit hypocritical speaking out on it when I had been a DARPA contractor as an academic. And, you know, I don't take that view now, but, you know, in the past, I've gotten credit for participating in those. And I, <laughs> I would say I deserve the shame, if you will, as someone who, who did not speak up. It was others doing that work. Yeah. And, and that's, I want to return to that um, uh, issue at some point of, you know, being a conscientious, conscientious objector. Um, but let's then take it to where your report comes in, because what your report does is it really kind of unmasks um, much deeper uh, what's going on in Project Maven, whereas before uh, it was about Google and their analytics to, you know, for um, drone surveillance, there's actually a lot more going on. It does include other tech giants like Microsoft and Amazon, but it also includes other kinds of tech like social media surveillance and it includes this kind of shadow industry so um if you were to then say you know kind of what is 
um, in its broadest sense, um, you know, Project Maven about? Yeah, I mean, it's, and this is a fairly public definition. It was supposed to be a pathfinder project for the Department of Defense to incorporate artificial intelligence into its battle networks. Now that might sound like a lot of jargon, but basically it was a project to really just uh, teach the Department of Defense how to incorporate best practices and how to work with industry in actually getting you know, real artificial intelligence that they, they built themselves into a weapon system. Um, and so if you understand it from that perspective, it, it shouldn't be so shocking that it would interface with numerous other projects. So for example, uh, there's been a lot of reporting over the years of how Palantir sued the US Army to get the contract for its so-called distributed common ground system, which really just think of it as a, a software platform to kind of integrate and view various intelligence collection uh, feeds uh, by, by the Army. Um, that actually you can see in public procurement records was interfacing with Maven as well. And like I said, this shouldn't be shocking if you think of Maven as just a, it's kind of the, the prototype of what it looks like for the US military to incorporate Silicon Valley AI. And we could dig in a lot deeper into how this relates to the so-called third offset strategy, if you like, which used to be talked about a lot, um, which, you know, obviously came after the second offset and the first offset. And in a nutshell, I'd say the third offset as proposed by, uh, for example, uh, Bob Work um, is that uh, the US military needs to incorporate artificial intelligence to uh, offset the fact that the Chinese military, for example, has many more just humans in it than the US military. And so historically, the U.S. has tried to have a technological lead to make up for its smaller personnel size. And the second offset you could think of is like GPS, precision guided munitions, air early warning systems. And the first offset strategy was actually just uh, small tactical nukes uh, deployed on the battlefield in, say, the 50s. Uh, most famously, there's something called the Davy Crockett that you can look up. And again, none of this is a secret. You can listen to Bob Work give talks. Um, and for anybody who doesn't know who he is, uh, at the moment, he's a principal at a consulting firm called West Exec, and he also co-chaired uh, a committee called the National Security Commission on AI alongside, you know, Google's former CEO, Oracle's CEO, Amazon CEO, uh, Microsoft's chief science officer. Before that, he was the, I believe, deputy undersecretary for defense. And historically, it's been the number two, not actually the, the Secretary of Defense who has led these sorts of offset strategies. So let's, let's then take a look at some of the um, technologies that you reported on here. Um, so you start off with uh, emotion recognition. Mm -hmm. So USSOCOM, mm -hmm. um, What's what's up with this? Um, and then and then you also have autonomous tanks. Um, what are some of these um, you know technologies and the companies involved um, bringing in here? Location um, tracking data as well. Yeah. So the 
the, the case you're referring to with the motion recognition uh, involves a company called Smile ML for Smile Machine Learning. And they actually got their start uh, doing a, a Pinterest kind of light sharing application. And what they found was that to, to make their application work well, they really needed to spend a lot of time speaking with potential users. And so they had all these videos of people trying to use their application and they found that what they really wanted was to get a sense of when people were happy and sad using their application. And so they wanted to run artificial intelligence on their sort of facial rec uh, expressions. And so that's where this company Smile ML came from. And one of their, their products is something called SalesSpot, which you can look up, which for example, is sold to managers of sales teams who can record the, the webinars or the, the Zoom chats that their sales uh, workers are, are uh, participating in to, to measure, for example, what percentage of the time are they smiling? Now, it's a bit dystopian if you ask me, uh, but they also have uh, an App Store uh, app for, for Apple that I think it's called, I forget the name, I think Emoji, Match Emoji is the name. And it's actually approved for children as young as four. And what you do is uh, on the screen, it displays like a, uh, an emoji of a face smiling or frowning, and you're supposed to match that with your face um, is part of a, a data collection process to train emotion recognition. And, and so it's thus maybe a bit concerning that this company has been selling its emotion recognition technology to US special forces, uh, which again is a matter of public record. Um, and in fact, um, you know, part of the reason I even put them in the report was it was a very simple example of a subcontracting relationship where there was just one subcontractor. In this case, it was Smile ML underneath the British defense giant BAE Systems, who then was working under US Special Forces. And so it was a kind of uh, the simplest possible example of these, the way these nested relationships work. Yeah. So why would the US military want emotion recognition technology? Um, so we have done a freedom of information request on what that contract is. So, you know, it would be great to have a full copy to, to get a better sense of what the exact purpose was. But if you look at the, the procurement description, it's for so-called ISR, which is Intelligence Surveillance Reconnaissance, kind of standard acronym, usually prefixed with like C4, C5, uh, anyway. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of video surveillance like we talked about already whether that's from drones or uh you know maybe it's even access to another video maybe a, a surveillance camera somewhere um and so of course if you're close enough you can see faces and so it's not shut such a shock that you know uh the u.s military would want to deploy facial recognition on those video feeds which is actually in procurement records for project maven or emotion recognition. Now, to give a caveat, sometimes the uh, some of these companies are used for things that are meant to kind of monitor the US troops themselves. But in this case, the contract explicitly said it was for ISR, which is a, a pretty strong hint that this is surveilling adversaries and not something that's about kind of monitoring the happiness of troops. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it just seems a little bit um, 
it leaves you really wondering, right? Like, all right, what are you gonna get out of that? Right? Like if you're if you're monitoring an area, I mean, are you gonna see that people are are angry or sad? Or are you gonna look for patterns? Um, I was thinking maybe that um, I mean, is it is it on static images? Because I was thinking maybe it could be used um for social media um data that they pull. I mean, so so, so for example, I mean, because we're going to get to the social media, but um, surveillance, but um, let's say you're trying to look at like a neighborhood or a city, mm -hmm. you know, maybe you can, you can try to figure out if what the kind of emotional sentiment is, um, you know, via what's publicly available on social media. Yeah, I mean, so certainly sentiment analysis is a, a major area. And in fact, when I was an assistant professor, you know, my colleagues that we're working with, say, the Pentagon and, and other, you know, with DARPA, et cetera, certainly we're doing sentiment analysis as well, for example, of tweets. And of course, advertisers care about that a lot as well. What did um, you think of that when you were, you were working on that personally? Uh, no, I, I did not build those sorts of things. I always tried to stay more on the math side and kind of got pulled into the the data science side. I honestly I never did any data science until I was at Google. I, I was a you know like I said a, a mathematician. You know I I built linear algebra, convex optimization, those sorts of things. Yeah. So, uh, but on the point of SmileML and what they're doing, like you know I I try to be very, very careful not to make any logical leaps. And to to kind of do very conservative statements on what is in procurement records, and so for that reason, I, I don't want to hypothesize too much on what the ISR is that SmileML contributed. But it's fair to say that if you look at all of their products, they include emotion recognition on video feeds, and so you know one could one could make a guess that that's going to be similar to what they're doing for U.S. Special Forces. Yeah, and you you. Mentioned in here also that Apple uh, advertises the data collection app, SmileML, that you're talking about, as suitable for children as young as four. Yes, for the the Match Moji app. Yeah, right. Not for anything military use, but um, um, always worth noting, right? Yeah, and in uh, fact, they also partnered with Google Education, and so you can find a Google Education blog post on SmileML as well. That emphasizes how privacy preserving they are. <laughs> um, right, right. Um, so, you know, autonomous tanks. Um, and um, procurement, DIA procurement of location tracking data alongside journalist alongside journalist friendly and palantir driven C4 ADS. You don't have to unpack that whole thing, but um, I mean, for the the um, autonomous tanks, um, the, uh, those are, so those are just unmanned ground, basically drones, right? Like tanks that you can roll up in a, a battle zone and you can fire away. I mean, what, what's what, what's up with those? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a um, very careful wording that's often used. I mean, there's an entire kind of uh, episode you could do, I'm sure, on on the campaign to stop killer robots and you know which countries for example the united states have been opposing bans on lethal autonomous weapon systems um it, it's fair to say that the kind of 
the party line of the United States is that humans will always be in the loop uh, in the kill chain, but that it's necessary that they have the ability to remove humans from the loop if necessary. Um, okay. So, for example, you know, the, the Eric Schmidt led committee, the National Security Commission on AI, called it a quote, moral imperative for the United States to explore lethal autonomous weapon systems. It shouldn't so, be so much of a shock that tanks would be one of the places that this would be uh, applied. Right. So they're not only unmanned, but potentially um, just built to put, make the decision about pulling the trigger. Right. Yeah. So the, the most kind of defensible thing is that they're remotely controlled, you know, with 50 caliber machine guns on top uh, and remotely piloted. But of course, um, as is kind of commonly stated by the, you know, people like McMaster, uh, Bob Work, is that the assumption is if there's a near peer competition with, say, China, they're going to knock out a lot of your communications infrastructure, whether that's you know GPS or your your networks, and so there's you know a, a potential advantage for your weapon systems to be able to function on their own without the full kind of chain of command and potentially in the extreme autonomously. Um, so the um, DIA procurement of location tracking data. Um, so you mentioned this C4 ADS, um, you know, outfit and innovation for peace. Um, right. So what's what's this um, location tracking uh, technology about? Yeah. So to be careful there. Um, so C4 ADS, uh, their full name is Center for Advanced Defense Studies. They their kind of pitch, at least originally, was that they were going to build kind of a, a tech platform to incorporate, you know, software from companies like Palantir and then integrate commercial data feeds uh, from companies like IHS Market, uh, Winward, et cetera, and then use that as a prototype for law enforcement agencies around the world to combat things like, um, you know, poaching, human trafficking, um, uh, nuclear weapons proliferation. And if you look at their board, you know, there's numerous uh, people either that just directly came from the U.S. military. There's the former, uh, I believe, CTO of InQtel is on the board. Um, but, you know, I would say that essentially the, the reason I wanted to highlight them in this report is that they show up a lot in very high profile reporting on um, com companies and nations which are avoiding US sanctions. And they're usually cited simply as a quote, nonprofit or an organization that is monitoring global security issues. And so I, I think it's of note that they are actually uh, a subcontractor with a US intelligence agency namely the Defense Intelligence Agency is shown in this report. And, and what they subcontracted on was that we were paid a quarter million dollars for quote bulk data sets. And so I reached out for comment to C4ADS and they had no comment uh, on uh, what it was that that contract was for, but they kind of gave an explanation that broadly speaking, they monitor publicly available information, which was a bit funny because I'd already titled my report that before they they uh, use that terminology. But the the connection to location tracking is that you know when there's subcontractors, there can be more than one. In this case, there were three 
um, companies which sold data on this contract to the Defense Intelligence Agency. Um, one of them was C4ADS, which sold bulk data sets. Another was Xmode Social, which is a location tracking data firm which had been caught um, non-consensually sourcing data from a Muslim prayer app uh, called Muslim Pro, a very popular app, and they were just taking uh, location tracking data of users. And then the other was a company called Premise Data, which you can think of as kind of a crowdsourced data collection company. Um, and then two of the other contractors, one of them was uh, Big Bear and the other was um, Black Cape. And broadly speaking, just think of them as kind of smaller competitors to Palantir and that they build tools that you can use to kind of fuse and, and kind of explore data sets. Um, and so um, not only was, was this nonprofit selling bulk data to a US intelligence agency, they were also doing so on a project which also used uh, this location tracking data that has very controversial history. Um, but that company has since changed its name to Outlogic and promised not to do defense contracting anymore. Interesting. So uh, if we're looking at some of this data coming in here, we're talking about location data. You have pictures in your um, report of um, you know some, some screenshots um, of like maps where you can be pulling in data for these companies. Mm -hmm. The information, is it being pulled in and, and pulled in to you know a giant kind of pot, right? So if you want to think about what some of these fusion-oriented platforms do. Mm -hmm. um, if you have Microsoft, they have their Microsoft Aware product, often called uh, Domain Awareness System. Um, it's a that's what it is, a Domain Awareness System. There are other ones that are not Microsoft-based, mm -hmm. um, but that's the moniker people call it. And the what they do is they bring in uh, data from surveillance cameras. They bring in data from shot spotter acoustic sensors and they bring in records data and basically what it is is a platform for the for the police and they can pull all this information into one big pot they can take information that used to be in separate silos mm -hmm. and now they can put it all together in one spot and they can look through it they can do stuff with the information they can try to predict things um, right, all sorts of things that they want to just make use of here, thanks to these new digital technologies. Um, so is it the case that there is a kind of platform that is being used by the US military? Because uh, you had mentioned Palantir mm -hmm. um, in association with Project Maven, all this data that we're talking about coming in. Yeah, so I mean, that's a, a big question. I, I would say um, certainly common operating picture is, is one way to describe what you just uh, um, elaborated on at length. Um, numerous companies have been funded for this by, for example, uh, the venture capital arm of US intelligence, Incutel. Um, Palantir is one of the earliest. Um, Indica, which is owned by Oracle, was another. Um, OmniSci is another, Kinetica, Transvoyant, you know, you, there's a long list beyond 
some of the ones I've mentioned already, like Black Cape and Big Bear. Um, there's just a lot of data feeds, and they're much more interesting when you can combine them and put them on a map. And beyond that, um, there's a style of intelligence analysis that became popular, uh, especially once location data started showing up, called activity-based intelligence. Broadly speaking, you can think of this as trying to put things on a map and looking at when um, different entities correlate in their activity geospatially and temporally. And there's a nice book on this. Um, sorry, that's my cat. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's a nice book on this called Activity-Based Intelligence from a, a former employee of Perspecta uh, named Patrick Biltgen. Uh, highly recommend that book. It describes how it connects to, for example, drone surveillance as well. Um, one could contrast that with, say, the uh, object-based production style of intelligence analysis that is more common to the Defense Intelligence Agency, which might be more based upon building up so-called uh, you know, baseball cards of different entities of interest, kind of what their stats are and up-to-date information. Um, so yeah, I mean, you, roughly speaking, it's useful to have a tool where, where you basically have a map and you can zoom into an area of interest and see what sorts of um, events are happening within that spatial and temporal uh, region. Um, and it's a very large numbers of companies have, have uh, worked in that space for a while and, and Palantir gets by far the most attention. And in fact, Palantir was the biggest subcontractor on um, an award related to Maven for the secure uh, unclassified network or SUNet, which you could think of as the kind of commercial and the, the non-classified equivalent of where of uh, the Amazon cloud that would be used for uh, the, the military AI. Um, and so that's where you would accumulate, say, the social media surveillance, the commercial satellite imagery, et cetera. So where does some of the um, other big tech giants come in in this? Because I know that you mentioned uh, Microsoft, uh, Amazon, right? Uh, were they not previously known to be participating in this uh, Project Maven? And, and what is it that they do? Yeah, I mean, there had been reporting on Amazon supporting Maven, uh, but Microsoft's role, I think, definitely was not appreciated, especially not that they had received the most money. You know, between Microsoft and Amazon, it was $50 million in public procurement records that they received. Um, uh, Clarify, which is a small startup, uh, its role had been very widely reported. Um, and, you know, in full disclosure, one of the, the core members of, of Tech Inquiry was actually a whistleblower on Clarify's participation on Project Maven. Uh, her name is Liz O'Sullivan. Um, and, but I would say that what wasn't known in, in the case of Clarify was that they weren't just you know, building AI for, uh, say, object tracking. They were also selling facial recognition, which is in public procurement records. They were also doing um, filtering on PAI. Uh, it, it was in the records, it calls it an NFSW filter, which to me 
seems like a not safe for work <laughs> filter on publicly available information, which makes sense that you, you may want to remove that kind of stuff if you're doing this professionally. Um, but then they also were processing uh, CEM, which stands for captured enemy materials. Um, and so, you know, my understanding of that would be that, you know, if documents had been captured from foreign combatants, then you may want to keep that in your databases for understanding the enemy. And so you can think of like uh, basically drones. So also, all of these companies were doing building AI to process satellite imagery um, for the same reasons that they were processing drone imagery. What you can find in some contracts relating to this is that basically there just aren't enough drones to cover the entire planet where you're interested in. So when you don't have drone footage, you fall back to satellite footage. But you need special AI trained on the satellite imagery because you're obviously much further away from the objects of interest and they're much smaller. Um, and so you can, in fact, see in the procurement records that these companies are building separate uh, computer vision AI for the satellite imagery. Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about social media surveillance before we um, get to the questions of what this all means. And I also want to bring up uh, think tanks and, and um, journalists and, and journalism around this. Um, so um, social media surveillance, uh, as you know, I, I recently did a, a piece at The Intercept on a company called Shadow Dragon. Right. And what I discovered when I was looking into them, really just through looking at their promotional materials, is that they have a system that they built that pulls in publicly available information, uh, but it, it kind of goes across many different platforms and websites, not just social media. So if you're at a new site and you have a username and you know, you're, you know, happy user one, two, three there, um, they can, and you make a comment at a news website, then you go and you have your Amazon wish list and you make that public, which is public by default. Um, and then you're on social media and you're posting there. What they can do is they can pull all your posts um, with the click of a button in there. And then they have tools set up to try to figure you out. It can make right. a timeline of all your posts. It can organize. It could try to, if you make your, the people you follow on social media public, or if your friends list is public, say from Facebook, it can start mapping out networks of people, you know, and you interact with, and it can do that same analysis for them. So it gives investigators these tools. And most people don't know that I mean, I think we're all aware that if a member of the police wanted to look at your public social media posts, anybody can click on it. But I don't think most people are aware that they have these tools that can really, you know, spider across the internet and pull all this information in. And so that's what Shadow Dragon does. And obviously they do it for police, they do it for immigration and customs, but they're also here alongside other companies. Um, as performing social media surveillance. And here you um, have given us the evidence that uh, Project Maven is purchasing this, um, these tools as part of this broad project. So can you speak a little bit about um, social media surveillance and how it fits into the 
bigger project maven picture? Yeah, so to be very careful, um, the project maven prime awards, for example, to ECS federal reference that they are storing data and processing data in this so-called uh, secure unclassified network or SUNet. Now it turns out that that same prime contractor ECS federal has another award, another prime award entirely on um, building a so-called publicly available information enclave within this secure unclassified network. And so within that prime award, we see, for example, Shadow Dragon uh, receiving a quarter million dollars um, for, if I look at the description, for its uh, Multigo uh, licenses. So it, it interfaces with this kind of network analysis company called Multigo, which you know Palantir kind of competed with um, in that that network analysis uh, approach. But the the biggest subcontractor for social media type surveillance was Babel Street, uh, which received more than $5 million. Um, and what the description was, was their uh, Babel X product as well, well as their Babel synthesis product. So Babel X, uh, you can think of as their long running, well-documented kind of social media and you know, multilingual uh, kind of surveillance tool. And Babel synthesis is kind of their newer AI kind of rebranded tool that I assume runs on top of Babel X. There's been very little reporting on Babel synthesis. Um, I, I linked to one um, article that had been written by a, um, I believe it's the, the People's Tech Project was the name of the, the website. Um, but yeah, this is a, you know plainly in the procurement records, you can go to Babel Street's website and you can find detailed diagrams of what the product is. Uh, but the, the company that was the second biggest uh, for selling this type of data was Intelligent Automation Inc., which I haven't seen any reporting on. Um, it, they kind of run the full gamut from social media surveillance to satellite uh, surveillance to kind of drone surveillance to um, you know facial recognition. Basically, they're they're kind of a, a rough around the edges jack of all trades for this kind of uh, DoD AI surveillance. Um, and then there are a few others, you know, EchoSec, Signal Labs, Creative Radicals, Flashpoint, um, and then actually one of the um, the least amount of money went to the location tracking data broker Ventel. But it's been reported that Babel Street through their Locate X product, which sell, resells the location data from Ventel. And so the fact that both Babel Street and Ventel showed up um, is a bit interesting um, in this uh, kind of enclave for accumulating all of this publicly available information. So what do we think that is being done with all of this? Um, we've spoken about location data that comes in and uh, um, drone footage. You have obviously your tanks, your autonomous tanks, but that's not like, not everything is necessarily connected, right? Right. To each other. Um, you have social media surveillance coming in, you have emotion recognition. Um, 
what's what's being done with that what's what do you think for example with the social media surveillance what do you think the the military is doing with those products yeah so it, on your broader question first like obviously historically there's been a lot of um compartmentalization of these sorts of efforts and so by no means would i infer that different prime awards are interacting with each other without some explicit evidence but in the case of for example, this prime award to ECS Federal for this PAI enclave in the, in the secure and classified network, we do see numerous social media kind of surveillance companies, a location tracking data broker, and then Palantir is the biggest uh, awardee. And so given that Palantir's strength is data fusion, um, it makes a lot of sense that uh, a data fusion platform would be used to fuse together uh, all of these different uh, data sources. Um, I don't think that's too much of a reach. Um, obviously, it's an inference, but I think it's a pretty careful inference. Um, one thing that's frequently discussed, for example, in you know, uh, numerous websites of, of these companies. It, it's uh, a focus of, you know, activity-based intelligence kind of writ large is trying to always attach a time and a location to any uh, piece of data that comes in. So for example, if it's a tweet, if it was geotagged, you know, you knew the time and the place that it occurred. Um, obviously, you know, if they're incorporating uh, location tracking data, you know, the time and the place where that entity was, or at least where their devices were. Um, and so once you start being able to do that, you can actually plot things on a map in this sort of common operating picture fashion that you're describing. And, and there's a lot of uh, precedent for that. So for example, uh, I mentioned a company OmniSci earlier, uh, which is a much less well-known kind of uh, Palantir-like uh, competitor. Well, they actually got their start as a project analyzing, you know, geolocated tweets in the Middle East relating to the Arab Spring. So you can imagine that there's a lot of value if you can monitor social media for understanding political climate. And in fact, there's a freedom of information request that Tech Inquiry got back, a pair of them that we got back a few years ago, um, let's say year and a half to two years ago, um, one was to Palantir and one was to the kind of Lockheed Martin equivalent called Transvoyant. And in the, the Transvoyant uh, award, it explicitly stated that they would be monitoring political climates alongside uh, kind of weapons readiness uh, globally. And it's very well known that Transvoyant uh, monitors social media um, so anyway, uh, it, it's definitely the case that social media serves as a proxy uh, for political climate. Yeah. Um, so, all right, we, we've covered, I mean, do you think we've sufficiently covered um, the technologies and, and some of the companies that are involved here? I mean, you beat around the bush a bit on the, the EMAV. Um, I don't think it's necessarily worth diving in. I mean, it's um, Pratt & Miller's autonomous tank, um, which there was a reference to alongside Anderl. But I, I can't, I don't know what Anderl was doing and they wouldn't comment. Um, though it is of interest that Anderl has previously worked on an autonomous firefighting tank, um, which is part of the reason I, I raised that. Um, 
Um, you know, I would say one, one thing we hadn't talked about was Project Cicero. Um, we, we talked a bit about the, this, the PAI enclave, but there's in fact a, a longer history of ECS Federal having done similar types of work for US Special Forces well before its uh, PAI enclave. That was PAI, kind of, again, for the audience, is publicly available information. Right. Yes. Right. And so when you're referring to a PAI enclave in this specific context, um, is that, what is it like carved out of, think about all the tech we just talked about. Is there one sub-enclave of PAI being put into one pot? What are you referring to when you say a PAI enclave? Right. It, it's sort of the information that's not tainted by classified data. And so, in, in fact, um, obviously when COVID hit, there was a major shift of uh, U.S. intelligence workers uh, to their home. Uh, and obviously that had implications for how they interact with classified data. So, so a P PAI enclave is just like easy to not worry about legally. You can just play around with that data right. as you wish. Yeah, so National Geospatial Intelligence Agency workers, you know, it's very publicly broadcast that their workflow shifted post-COVID to, you know, do most of your analysis on unclassified data. And at the very end, you do the extra work to start pulling in the classified data. And so if you thought of what this would mean in the context of Project Maven and, you know, general DOD AI, the bulk of the work is going to take place on this publicly available commercial data, like, you know, satellite imagery from Maxar, for example, social media scraping, you're going to learn what you can there. And then you're going to go the extra mile to, to kind of add in the, the more sensitive sources. And so, you know, the, this enclave is um, what we've been discussing. And then Amazon has a separate cloud, uh, which would be for the more sensitive data. And, and so in that sense, there's some compartmentalization. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. According um, to classification and access. Right. And, and that's actually repeated, you know, over and over again in the Project Maven procurement records that there is separate performance uh, in the classified and unclassified uh, domains. So I want to close out here on, on, on three questions. Um, uh, and I'll give you a chance to see if you want to add anything in as well at the end. But w one is, um, what is the role of uh, think tanks and media that you discuss in the um, report that you put out? Another is, you know, what sh what is the kind of concern with supplying all this technology to the US military in the first place. And the third we'll come back to. Yeah, so in your first question of the role of think tanks and the media, like, you know, I, I think it's pretty well understood that think tanks like the uh, Center for, uh, what is it, Strategic and International Studies or CSIS, that they're pretty hawkish. They're widely known to be funded primarily by US weapons manufacturers and tech companies, as well as you know, foreign governments historically, especially in the Middle East. 
Um, and often their large percentage of their staff are former intelligence agents. Um, and they're sort of seen as kind of nonpartisan uh, experts for journalists to go to for quote. So I, I think that with the, the shift that is taking place over the last few years, which we've already discussed of kind of a moving from classified data into publicly and commercially available data is kind of the center of intelligence analysis. What we're seeing as well is the emergence of kind of software and data-driven think tanks, like for example, C4ADS. And so the, the concern that that raises for me is that you know, uh, they're, they're not even often referred to as, as think tanks and they're, they're not as well known as say a CSIS. And so I think the public is kind of disarmed as to where they're coming from and what their biases are. And so the fact that, you know, uh, an entity could just be described as a quote nonprofit when they're an intelligence contractor built on Palantir and they're being quoted on sanctions avoidance, you know, for US sanctions on US enemies, to me, that you know, that's an important thing to have underlined, and you know, this these types of organizations smell a lot more like intelligence contractors to me than they do sort of independent nonprofits. Um, so, you know, as I, you know, uh, mentioned to you before, the the focus on you know surveillance for targeting uh, entities which are avoiding U.S. sanctions actually extends. Uh, into procurement for Babel Street, which we already talked about. Uh, Tech Inquiry got a FOIA back on um, the Office of Foreign Asset Controls of the US Treasury, in fact, procuring Babel Street's both social media and location tracking surveillance products. Um, and so I think it's kind of worth paying attention to that kind of um, uh, network between U.S. intelligence agencies, uh, think tanks, and intelligence contractors in, in the way that they uh, monitor U.S. sanctions avoidance. Uh, and very little attention seems to be paid to that uh, in especially, you know, high-profile press. Right. And I think we, we might add that if uh, the Chinese government was doing something like this, uh, there would be a lot of uh, anger about it, not that, not to say that uh, we should assume that they're not right. I mean, obviously, uh, foreign governments are pulling publicly available data. I think it's pretty safe to assume, at least, um, and they have specialized tools uh, to gain access to information that's on the internet. Um, but uh, I think, I guess, the underlying assumption is is that. Um, the United States and its its military agenda, its uh, policy agenda is benevolent, and um, that we're basically the good guys who promote democracy and um, you know things like that. Um, so I think I guess that for me personally is is a big part of the concern when I see all these technologies. Not not only is it society is evolving in a way that is um, disturbing, right? A peaceful global society wouldn't really have to resort to all this, but that we know that the world's very militaristic and violent, you know, leading 
empire um, is seemingly the master of these tools. Yeah, I would say even more broadly, I, it's worth pushing back on the fact that publicly available information has a certain con, you know, assumed uh, meaning. And one might contest whether location tracking data taken from cell phone ad tech uh, data, especially from you know, companies like Vintel and Xmode Social, if that's a fair characterization. Because I, I think it's, you know, it's assumed that publicly available information surveillance should be fair. <laughs> uh, but I, I don't think that it's fair to be uh, taking people's location non-consensually from their, their cell phones. Um, and obviously there are severe civil liberties implications there. Yes, um, I, I, you know, I, I think it's, um, there's a narrative that somehow China is the only nation that does sort of extreme surveillance. And so for, you know, just the simple sake of being consistent, I think as a US citizen, it's my duty to at least uh, document what it is that is even <laughs> a matter of public record is what the US government has been doing and how that relates to uh, civil liberties violations. So again, Xmode Social and Vintel show up in numerous cases. If, if we're concerned with human rights uh, violations involving Muslims internationally, why would we not be concerned domestically when we're literally surveilling their prayer applications is, is one of the data sources. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, uh, I, I hope that this is at least a small contribution. Kind of my, my overall project here is attempting to make it easier to monitor procurement of this whole zoo of, of contractors. Um, and as well as documenting the methodology of how you can dig into these things. Like just because they're technically public doesn't mean that it's easy for even a journalist to deduce what it's saying. Um, so it might've come across as a bit of a hodgepodge, but hopefully it at least kind of um, shows the steps and some interesting things you can learn. For sure. And, and on the, you know, China question and Muslims, it's interesting that people tend to lose that the United States military was rounding up people in Iraq, people in Afghanistan, and scanning their eyes, scanning their biometrics, right, as, as they were under a military occupation. And so when the United States claims to be standing up for Muslims in the world, um, it's kind of, um, to me, uh, comical, because if you look at what they've done to the Muslim world, over time, it's kind of extreme um, and very repressive. Um, I wanna maybe close out on this um, question. So your report here, you know, we, we tried to cover a lot of it. Uh, it has a lot of links and I hope people check it out, um, but we also put it into, um, you know, we cover some of the broad contours and uh, it's gotten a lot of tension in the international press. And um, it's been really favorable. And I think you've done a, a great service uh, to the public in doing this work at Tech Inquiry and, and publishing this. Um, you know, how have you seen the reception uh, so far? And, it, and do you think it's, it's helping to make a difference uh, potentially in, in terms of um, what could be done about all these technologies that are being used 
by the U.S. military and their relationship to these corporations? Yeah, I mean, I appreciate that, you know, kind description. I, I'd say if I've gotten any pushback, it's been from journalists. Um, and it's not such a secret if you read the report that, unfortunately, simply to lay out some of these relationships, the coverage through prominent journalistic outlets necessarily has to be pointed out, whether that's, you know, the New York Times or through BuzzFeed News. And it's not a statement that what those institutions are reporting is false so much as a maybe a concern that there should have been more disclosure of what sorts of intelligence contractors they were quoting. Um, and so I would say, broadly speaking, I have a concern that Palantir and various other intelligence contractors are kind of being adopted more widely by journalists um, than is widely appreciated. You know, so one of the things I pointed out was the Center for New Data, which used to be called the COVID Alliance, which involves you know, both Xmode Social, which had done the, the Muslim prayer surveillance, as well as ProPublica, which is you know, one of my favorite outlets anyway, one of the, the most, I think, careful and conscientious uh, journalistic uh, outlets. And so you know, the, the question I kind of continue to, to think about is, given the kind of Luddite uh, stance that a lot of tech activists have taken recently, you know, have we taken that too far and should we be building tools that can at least replace the need for journalists to go to, you know, companies like Palantir or, or whether that's through nonprofits or not, like basically what are we doing to be the suppliers of the more ethical, transparent, public interest, corporate surveillance tools so that over time reporting doesn't get skewed towards just uh, criticizing U.S. adversaries and that it can have just as, you know, a, a more consistent approach globally, let's say. Yeah, and so some of those companies that these journalistic outlets or these media outlets are relying upon, it's for what kind of things, like data-driven journalism is what comes to mind here. So are you saying that uh, they might rely on Palantir or some of these companies um, to do their own data-driven journalism about what? Um, is it about the military stuff? Is it about COVID? Um, is it about- like, Usually US sanctions- What's lawyer. the conflict of interest here? Yeah, I mean, so for example, C4 ADS is built, their, their platform is built on Palantir. And they're, you know, if you look through their reports that come out, Almost all of them involve, whether it's North Korea or China or Iran, avoiding US sanctions in some way. And so the kind of pattern is that they have access to data sets that journalists often don't because they're commercial and then they're made easily available through Palantir. And so if you're a journalist trying to investigate corruption in the broadest sense of the term, then you might use C4 ADS for this. Um, there's been a journalist that just outright defended to me that there was no replacement for Palantir in his reporting. I'm not going to name who it is, but uh, th this is kind of what made me be concerned. Um, and was it for reporting about military stuff or was it reporting about something? This was reporting about uh, U.S. intelligence or U.S. defense contractors who had been in involved with uh, 
uh, a violation of U.S. sanctions on Iran um, in in uh, uh, abroad. Um, and so, you know, again, it's not such a shock that a U.S. intelligence contractor nonprofit would have a bias towards, you know, uh, monitoring where U.S. sanctions might be avoided. And, you know, that I, I'm not saying they're not a useful source. I just think it should be loud and clear to readers where they're coming from and, and what their, their biases are. And in some cases, this nonprofit C4ADS has also been involved in reporting on uh, human rights violations in, in Xinjiang. Um, now, to be clear, it's been stated that that did not involve the usage of their Palantir kind of platform. But nevertheless, it did involve this intelligence contractor. Um, and so I, you know, basically, you know, even if you're coming at this from the place I am, which is uh, thinking that, you know, <laughs> these are very real uh, human rights issues, then the question is, why are we tainting that with U.S. intelligence contractors that aren't properly disclosed? Uh, so to me, it's like, it's actually a matter of just the kind of uh, defensibility of the, the reporting. Uh, because if you're a skeptic, of course, the fact that there's a U.S. intelligence contractor involved is going to raise some red flags, as it, of course, would if China was accusing the U.S. of something and it was using its own intelligence contractors kind of uh, without attribution to do that. Um, so anyway, that's a, a long-winded answer. But basically, my my call to the, the tech community is, like, what are you doing? <laughs> why, why aren't we building our own? Uh, platforms for, you know, to support, you know, investigations in a way that is not tied to U.S. intelligence contractors. Yeah, for sure. And uh, maybe last question here. Um, has there been any dissension or pushback that you've heard about from workers, maybe at some of the more traditional tech giants? I'd imagine Shadow Dragon does this stuff, so they're not going to do it. But have Microsoft employees or Amazon or anybody taken this news and, and raised an issue that you know of? Uh, interestingly enough, uh, an employee from Premise Data followed me on Twitter, but that's been one of the only uh, consequences. I, I think uh, it's been a bit disappointing, honestly, that Microsoft activism seems to have um, not been nearly as active as it used to be. Uh, I want to say, you know, in the last few years, there were, you know, MS Workers for Good was an organization that had spoken out on things like the HoloLens. Um, Amazon, there have been a lot of uh, employees that have spoken out, especially over climate impacts. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'd say there's a question of why, you know, do the employees actually care writ large? Um, I mean, that, that's an entire conversation in itself, uh, but at least if if they did care, this information is not so hard to find. Yeah. And, you know, maybe one day I'll have you back on the show. Uh, some of our conversations, um, I know for sure that you're, you know, the field very well about the questions of tech activism and conflict of interest and things like that. So, I recommend that audiences follow you on Twitter. You're at Jack Polson, J-A-C-K-P-O-U-L-S-O-N. Is that correct? 
with an underscore before it, but yeah. With an underscore before. Um, yeah, and um, to check out your tech inquiry website um, and um, um, just to you know stay tuned into your work. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, so Jack, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure and I uh, hope to return someday. <laughs> okay. All right, take care. All right, cheers.